The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Monday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza, along with Carl Quintanilla and John Fort. China is in the spotlight. Tensions in the sky with the U.S. Pinduoduo makes a Super Bowl ad. And more talk of a TikTok ban, plus checking in with Checkpoint. The cybersecurity company beating estimates and increasing its buyback, but the stock was seeing a drop. It's made it back into positive territory. We will talk exclusively to the CEO. And finally, is the NFL the glue that keeps linear TV alive? We'll discuss that also. John? Yeah, stocks meanwhile trying to regain their footing after the S&P and NASDAQ suffered their worst weekly declines in nearly two months. We are watching inflation closely this week with the CPI and PPI reports both due out. Right now, we're higher across the board with the NASDAQ leading those gains. You can see it's up more than a percent. The others two slightly less. Microsoft, a big winner today, as you were just hearing, up more than 3%, the best performer on the Dow, one of the top five performers on both the S&P and NASDAQ 100, Carl. Uh, Meantime, John, let's start in China today. Despite rising political tensions over these spy balloons, the country is advertising itself as open for business. And the KWEB ETF is still holding on to -to year-to-date gains. Uh, U.S. businesses are re-entering the country as well. Uh, The Wall Street Journal reporting that Apple's Tim Cook and Pfizer's Albert Borla plan to visit next month. Joining us now on what to expect from this reopening is our own Yunus Yoon back on the beat live in Beijing. Hi again, Yunus. Hey, Carl. Well, because of the strict travel restrictions as well as onerous quarantines, very few executives have made it here to China over the past three years. So it's really no surprise to hear that uh, CEO Tim Cook or others might be considering coming here to speak to their local staff or meet with government officials in order to get a better sense of their business. And there are a lot of opportunities that are coming up. Uh, Big business conferences such as the China Development Forum are going to be held here in Beijing. At least that looks like the plan. And um, from what we're hearing, it looks as though the CEO of Tim Cook, as well as others, are considering joining that forum. In addition to that, um, not only here in Beijing, but there's the uh, Guangzhou uh, forum, the Canton Fair, which is happening in April, as well as in Shanghai, the uh, China Auto Show, another big conference that a lot of businesses and executives have traditionally come here for, but have all been put off over the past three years. Now, the questions, though, um, are, that are coming up among um, business leaders are a little bit different this time. And a lot of that is because there's been a big reframe over the past three years due to zero COVID and the rising tensions between the U.S. and China. This latest uh, balloon incident is just the latest reminder to um, that uh, business leaders are going to have to rethink their China strategy. So some of the questions that have been coming up have been, one, 
uh, how much exposure do I really want to have to China? What uh, kind of future investment should I have here, for example? Um, or what to do, do uh, you know, the, the supply chain, what do I want it to look like? Another big question that people have been uh, asking is uh, how do I account for the risk of the conflict, uh, not only um, over, say, this incident of the balloon, but also larger issues such as Taiwan. And then finally, there's been a lot of discussion here uh, not only, uh, well, similar to the way that, that uh, there's been increased pressures on government, um, there's been an increased uh, concern about the scrutiny that businesses will face here, including on their brand image, what kind of reputational mm -hmm. brand image uh, damage uh, potentially could happen if they invest bigger here in China. So a lot of questions, guys, mm -hmm. that executives are thinking about these days um, because of um, this, this latest right. balloon incident as well as other issues. So, Eunice, if you're Tim Cook, you're Apple, um, even if you're trying to diversify away from China in the longer term, that's going to take a lot of time. You still need to go in, check in after three years of being shut out because of the pandemic. Do you think that the tenor of those visits could change? Typically, a lot of CEOs, they meet with government officials. But is that going to look bad in the current environment? Could they go under the excuse of saying, listen, we've got employees there, we've got offices there. That's what we're going to check in on and then meet with government officials on the sly, or would that even be sort of too much given rising geopolitical tensions? I think that um, most uh, people here, and especially who are in business and have been here for a long time, know that it's essential to meet with government officials yeah. and with local authorities in order to get a better sense of the business. So um, at least uh, for those who, who understand the business, uh, they, they would... Um, see it as a given that this is going to happen. On the other hand, though, just as you're bringing up, especially in the tech sector, um, there's a lot of sensitivity about coming to China um, and your exposure. So if you're in, say, uh, tech, um, any type of technology, as well as aviation, um, uh, high-end manufacturing, uh, these all were areas that in past years weren't really that sensitive and now are increasingly right. so. Maybe the celebrations get a little more subdued, less, less Baijiu drinking between execs and uh, government <laughs> officials. Eunice, thanks so much for that. Uh, That's China not really also, a bad thing. <laughs> that, yeah, I'm sure for them it's not a bad thing at all if you've ever tried Baijiu. Um, meanwhile, China was also having an impact on the big game. Presence was felt there. Timu, that is the U.S. shopping platform owned by Chinese parent Pinduoduo, advertising not once but twice during the Super Bowl. The bet seems to be paying off, shooting up on the list of the top free apps on Apple's U.S. app store this morning. Uh, for more on China's e-commerce push in the U.S., let's bring in CNBC senior tech reporter Arjun Karpal, who joins us from London. Arjun, uh, great to have you on the show. Uh, so Chinese companies have tried to go west and there hasn't really been a big success aside from TikTok. But what does TikTok tell us in terms of the ability for Chinese companies to gain an audience here, but also some of the perils of that as well? Would anything be different the way that Pinduoduo is going to do it? Have they learned any lessons from TikTok? Yeah, I mean, TikTok's certainly been a success and D, great to be on the show finally. Um, you look, TikTok's been a great success uh, so far internationally and clearly this is a company, ByteDance, the parent company, who's very much been a company focused on the international markets. When I was in China, you know, I spoke to a lot of execs over at ByteDance and they were very much focused on the global uh, push. And I think that mentality is really filtering through to a lot of the Chinese tech companies you're seeing now as well when they have that appetite to go, go abroad. Now, of 
course, uh, Timu uh, Pinduoduo very much in the e-commerce uh, sector here as well. And what they're looking at, I think, is a model that very much uh, was uh, pioneered really by Shein, the other Chinese uh, fast fashion company that's found success in the U.S. and elsewhere. And I think Timu's advantages uh, are, are a couple of things here. Firstly, the fact that Pinduoduo, the parent company in China, has a very strong supply chain. Uh, it understands e-commerce very well. And so it's able to get products onto its international platform, uh, Timu, uh, from China at a very low cost. And that was really what the whole Super, ad, uh, Super Bowl ad was about. Shop like a billionaire. It was showing items at a cheap pricing. Look at all the stuff you can get uh, for next to nothing. And that's one of its big advantages. I think the difficulty could be really is that brand perception and also the quality. It needs to make sure that the products it's putting on its platform are high quality so that people don't see it as some sort of cheap company uh, at, that, that is just offering pretty bad products. And that's going to be the key there. Can they build that brand perception? Clearly, that was really what that Super Bowl ad was about there. Hey, Arjun, it's John. So the geopolitical tensions are rising pretty quickly, especially with this balloon uh, focus now, maybe a little bit more on TikTok. Uh, what's been the successful Chinese tech and e-commerce playbook to operating in the U.S. and perhaps uh, staying above reproach? Or has there been one? Are they able to answer the kinds of questions that need to be answered when it comes to data sovereignty uh, and, and surveillance that uh, politicians here are certainly going to want to hear answered. There's been very few uh, success stories, John, quite frankly. I mean, in the tech sector in particular, one I would say is Tencent, the, the huge Chinese gaming and social media giant. It's found success by investing in gaming studios around the world or acquiring those gaming studios and sort of very much taking a hands-off approach. And a lot of the games that it has acquired or is invested in have found success in the U.S., that's one model that's been successful. And so far, they've pretty much flown under the geopolitical radar to a large extent in that gaming section. Uh, TikTok, the other big player here really that's come in and uh, owned by Chinese parent ByteDance has managed to find success. But we are now seeing, of course, here this uh, caught up in the geopolitical tensions between the US and China. And there are a number of tech companies out of China that are very much caught in the crossfires here. Huawei, of course, uh, number one on that list. A number of chip companies out of China, drone companies out of China. So I think it's very hard for, for pure play tech companies to, to find success here, John. And I think uh, the model here is e-commerce feels very uh, unpolitical, very safe. And that's perhaps why a lot of these companies are, are aiming for that e-commerce route. Okay, Arjun, thank you. And as he was just saying, uh, the U.S. might bring China's pro-business push to a screeching halt. U.S. lawmakers are reviving efforts to ban TikTok in the U.S. Julia Borston, joins us with the latest on that. Julia. Well, John, there is a growing call from Congress to ban TikTok nationwide. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer saying on ABC News over the weekend, quote, is something that should be looked at. This comes after Senators Marco Rubio and Angus King reintroduced bipartisan legislation to ban TikTok and other similar apps from operating, and they just uh, announced this in the U.S. last Friday. Now, the goal would be to block and prohibit all transactions from any social media company in or under the influence of China, Russia, and several other foreign countries, unless these companies divest of their foreign ownership. TikTok responding, giving us a statement saying, quote, Senator Rubio continues to push deliberate misinformation about TikTok. TikTok is not owned or controlled by any government, and we do not share U.S. user data with the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party, nor would we 
if asked. TikTok CEO Show Chu is testifying before Congress on March 23rd, so there's going to be a lot of attention on what he says there. Carl. Uh, Julia, I'm just wondering at this point, who, who is leading any kind of defense of TikTok uh, remaining uh, open in the United States? I know the president was asked about it last week. Uh, he, he said, uh, I'm not sure. I know I don't have it on my phone. Uh, what, what, what's the other case? I think the defense is coming from TikTok, and they've been saying that they've been working with CFIUS, the Treasury's um, uh, Committee for Foreign Investment in the U.S., and working with them on a solution to make sure that all of the data, all of the information is housed here in the U.S. They have this, uh, this project, Texas is what they call it, um, in partnership with Oracle to oversee all of that data. So TikTok has been working with CFIUS for so long, guys, that they are frustrated that CFIUS has not come out with an official um, announcement that they have a deal in place. But in the meantime, TikTok is sort of moving forward with this plan. So I think that the longer, you know, this longer this drags on and the more time that passes, the less likely we are to see that that plan they agreed to with CFIUS last fall be actually officially implemented. All right, Julia Borston, thank you. Now, the New York Fed is out with its consumer expectations survey ahead of tomorrow's crucial CPI report. Rick Santelli with some of the highlights. Rick. Yes, John. And as we're talking about the highlights, let's throw a 10-year chart up there. Rates have ticked up just a little bit, as you see on that intraday chart. But most of the report's pretty good news, especially in front of tomorrow's uh, CPI. Let's go through it, shall we? The January read, uh, the, the big headline is, is that inflation for one year moved from 5% to 4.95%. Now, that doesn't seem like a huge change, but it's still the lowest level since July of 21. And if we go through the entire report, spending down two-tenths. What's notable about spending down two-tenths? Well, it's at the lowest level, 5.7% since early 22. And if we look at income, income dropped 1.3%, John. That is the biggest drop since record keeping goes back to 2013. And it's left at 3.3%. Uh, we want to pay also particularly close attention. I pointed out the one-year inflation uh, target of 4.95. The three-year is 2.7. That ticked down two-tenths of 1%. And the five-year is the only metric that actually ticked higher, up one-tenth of 2.5. Uh, gas, food, education remain a bit high historically, according to the report. And here's some good news. Rent and medical care remain largely unchanged between December and January. I do think that the one read that moved up only one-tenth on the five-year outlook may have been the fly in the ointment, but there's a general nervousness in the market in front of tomorrow's CPI to begin with. Carl, back to you. Yeah, indeed, Rick, although we are holding on to session highs in the wake of that uh, data. Thank you, uh, Rick Santelli, today. Still to come this hour, the CEO of cybersecurity firm Checkpoint is with us after results. A nice beat, a buyback increase, uh, billings coming in a tad light. And then five known activist investors reportedly with stakes in CRM. What is next for Mark Benioff and Salesforce? The window for nominations on the board opens today. Tech Check is just getting started. brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. 
What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Take a look at Checkpoint Software. Shares are fractionally higher this morning after posting a beat on the top and bottom lines in Q4. Billings coming in a bit weak, though. Guidance in line with estimates. So what is the read-through for cybersecurity in 2023? Let's bring in Checkpoint CEO Gil Schwed for a closer look in the CNBC exclusive. Gil, welcome. Um, solid results on the top and bottom. Got, got to start with the billings, though, and the margins. What do you see happening with demand out there? And what's happening with costs, perhaps, that's affecting you in the margins? So I think our margins are very healthy. We're always been in the 40-some percent of uh, operating and net margin, actually some even at the 50. So our challenge is not the margin. Our uh, challenge is always to provide better security and to grow the business. And I think last year we did that very well. It was the fastest growth since, I think, 2015. Okay, but what is what does have those operating margins down from last year? Is that just um, higher costs of employees at the same time? Is that something that you see easing heading into 24? Where are those things going to normalize? The main thing is investing in our business. It's more cost for employees. We We hired a lot more people last year. I mean, the market has been last year very competitive, so people are getting paid more, and we are getting into more markets, and that's that's the main one. There's also some some additional cost in the supply chain. The the devices that we manufacture cost more, and I hope that that will go down a little bit. Uh, We are supplying more uh, cloud-based services, and they cost more, but mainly it's our employees. We are a software business. Okay, so two things I wonder about when it comes to cybersecurity and threats in 2023. One uh, has to do with when the economy turns down, it seems like sometimes that opens up new attack vectors. Are you seeing anything different where that goes? And then with AI, uh, conversational AI, it strikes me that if this gets into the wrong hands, it could be good for social engineering. Um, Is that something that perhaps is happening or that you're already beginning to build and guard against? So the answer to both questions is yes. I mean, we do see a big increase in cyber attacks. Last year, I think the worldwide average has been like 38% increase in cyber attack. And that's, again, it's for many years. It's not uh, in the US. I think it's been even more in the 50s. You can see top uh, sectors that are being attacked. And by the way, the reason that education, government, and healthcare are being attacked is sometimes because they are less protected. I mean, hacker is act where it's easy. AI, by the way, is a big new trend that we all see and we all experience, and I think it's great. It can be used by cyber criminals too. It can be used, not by, by the way, it can be used for social engineering. So hackers find it very easily to communicate. And I think in the future, they'll be able to create bots that behave like human beings. But also the new tools that we have can write actual malware. Mm-hmm. You can actually tell it to write code, not just to write human language. And it can create through uh, malicious code. We've seen that. Our checkpoint research organization 
has shown not only that it can be done, but it also found in the wild cyber attacks that were created by ChatGPT. Gil, what's the risk that companies, you know, shun spend on something like cybersecurity for these buzzy new technologies like AI? You said that you were seeing some softness in December. Has that continued this year? And do you think that companies are starting to spend on other things because we haven't had, you know, a huge cybersecurity attack in the media for some time? I think right now companies facing a lot of pressure to manage expenses, and I think we've seen it with the big tech giants, and I think we're seeing it on almost every industry. What we're hearing from customers is that actually cyber is the last area to uh, to cut back on, and that they feel the demand for cyber will last for long. But again, it doesn't have to last and grow in the same numbers that it grew in the past. So yes, we've seen some softness at the end of the year. Too early to say what will happen next year, for sure, for the mid and long term, the demand will be high. Yes, we need more cyber. Uh, talk about Israeli politics, but it is worth noting uh, some of these uh, workers in Israel that have gone on strike. Uh, judicial reform in Israel is a huge hot topic. Do you think it holds uh, liabilities for tech companies based in Israel? I think every company wants to be in a place where it's stable economy, but uh, I would just to be, I mean, 98% of our sales comes from outside Israel. So the big impact on Checkpoint is by far what's the economy like in America and what's the economy like in the rest of the world. So, so far we did. And by the way, some of the things that are not so good for the citizens of Israel, like a stronger dollar and and so on are good for exporters so i do i want the people i want it to be good in israel but uh, the economy sometimes work in the opposite way so i mean i don't wish israel economy to be weak but uh, but uh, for business result it's not necessarily bad for us gil thank you gil schwed the ceo of checkpoint when we come back today, five known activists reportedly now have positions in Salesforce. When could any changes be coming? That's coming up next. Plus, check out Okta today. B of A initiating underperform, saying there are elevated risks of slow growth and limited margin upside resulting from the intense competition from the likes of Microsoft. Shares down 1%. Tech Check will be right back. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Salesforce has attracted the attention of five known activist investors. So what change could these activists be pushing for in the coming weeks and months? Our Frank Holland has more. Frank, five, I mean, it seems they got to get their wants together because it seems like they could cancel each other out. How do you listen to five different activist investors at once? Well, a lot going on. Just to be clear, five activists at the same time is very unusual. One or two would be a lot. So let's just start with some of the numbers here. Salesforce has outperformed since activist investor Starboard Value announced a significant stake starting yesterday. The five activists, yes, five in the software giant can nominate board members. Salesforce has engaged with these activists, but no word on those talks. We do know that back in September, 
Salesforce released these financial targets for fiscal year 2026. We also know that Value Act CEO was just added to the board. And from David Faber's reporting, we also know that Starboard Value believes that CRM has a subpar mix of profitability and growth. But I'm telling you, there are just so many other questions around this situation. Ken Squire, founder of 13D Monitor, says we shouldn't expect much more public information, but we could see director nominations very soon. Issue here is you have to settle with one activist so that they're all happy. The last thing you want to do is settle for a board seat and then have a different activist run a proxy fight. So you're probably not going to settle until after the nomination window to make sure all the nominations are in. But those nominations could come sooner. The nominee window is open until March the 14th. One key thing here, SEC rule changes allow for all shareholders, even if voting remotely, to kind of mix and match the slated directors they vote for. Previously, they were restricted unless they were there voting in person, which, of course, not many people actually do nowadays. I just don't even know where to start with this. I mean, it seems like they could cancel each other out. Right. Um, maybe this increases Benioff's possibilities of pulling an Iger and doing something that gets the right because uh, unless they can agree why are they all in there I don't know well I, I think first and foremost this is really a test of some of the star power that I've talked about Mark Benioff having um I, you know previously and Deirdre laughed at it I talked about him having his own orbit that he's a big guy so I'm not talking about that just his ability just to kind of bring attention to himself and bring attention to the company so his ability to work with some of these different uh, activist investors is going to be a key part of this also, they settled very quickly with Value Act. Their CEO, Mason Morfitt, a former Microsoft board member, a former Adobe board member, now on the board. So the question is, how do the other activist investors feel about that? I spoke to a lot of people, analysts, people in PE. A lot of people believe that Mason Morfitt is actually a value add in this situation. It remains to be seen, though. I mean, we're looking at a chart of CRM. It's up nearly 30 percent year to date, Frank. Is it possible that maybe some of these actors have bowed out, made some money in this trade and gone away? Because, again, just to John's point, Activists like to dictate terms and build up positions so that they can make their aims known. That seems really, really tough with so many in the room, plus Benioff, as you say. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's going to be a big question. We won't really know until it's time for these different activist investors to nominate their directors. But one thing that hasn't changed is that the targets that Salesforce put out didn't seem to make Starboard happy. It seems like some of these other activists believe there's just more profitability in there. Right now, uh, Salesforce, about 48% of their revenue goes to sales and marketing. I'm sure some of these activist investors are looking at that number. Salesforce's target for fiscal year uh, 2026 is to get that number below 35%. Um, so a lot of questions. And also think, Salesforce does not pay a dividend. They announced a big share buyback, their first in history in August. But the question is, are there other ways to make them more profitable and for these activist investors that are also shareholders to get more money out of the company, to Deirdre's point? <laughs> it's reminding me of... Uh of the jungle. Uh, we'll see <laughs> who's playing the role of what animal. Uh, Frank, thank you. Thank you. After the break, retail investors appear to be chasing momentum again. AI stocks and Tesla are a couple of the hot picks right now. We're going to look at whether this run can continue. And then Meta reportedly considering more job cuts. 11,000 employees already impacted. How far will tech's cost cutting go? We're back in a moment. Welcome back to Check Check on Bertha Coombs with your CNBC News update. Portions of a grand jury report on former President Trump's efforts to overturn his election loss in Georgia 
will be made public on Thursday. A judge ruled most of the report will remain sealed as local prosecutors decide whether to bring charges against Trump or any of his allies. But its introduction and conclusion will be released, along with a section on jurors' concerns that some unnamed witnesses may have lied under oath. Qatari investors are planning an initial bid to buy Manchester United by the end of the week. That, according to Bloomberg, British billionaire Jim Ratcliffe has also been working on a potential offer for the English Premier League soccer team that is owned by the U.S.-based Glazer family. And in what appears to be a joking response to a tweeted question asking what he was talking about with News Corp's Rupert Murdoch last night at the Super Bowl, Elon Musk had a one-word response. Dogecoin. Cryptocurrency's price briefly surged. It's now trading off almost four and a half percent, and it is down nearly 90 percent <laughs> since he joked All about right. it back in I May mean, 2021 on SNL. I'm shocked it even got a bit of a pop, but that's Dogecoin for you. Why should we be surprised by that? Bertha, thank you. Uh, speaking of Dogecoin, retail inflows are soaring again, and that is benefiting equity names like Tesla and stocks in the AI space. Kaverny is with us now for a closer look at what is driving the retail insurgence and the heightened risk appetite. FOMO is back. FOMO is back. And Dogecoin apparently is back for a minute. It's so funny. It's a good throwback for Dogecoin there. But, D, the, the action has really been concentrated and just a handful of stocks. The first area, you've got artificial intelligence names, thanks to some of the recent buzz around this technology. According to Vanda Research, C3AI saw a surge in net inflows last week after Microsoft unveiled some of those updates to its search engine with ChatGPT, Google also unveiling its own AI chatbot. And the pace of retail net buys spiked last week. And you see that on the chart there. It is slowing a bit, which typically foreshadows a loss of some of that price momentum. There's also been a notable rise in net inflows to Microsoft, NVIDIA as well, and then some of the smaller cap AI names like Big Bear and SoundHound AI. Tesla is consistently the most bought stock by individual investors. Last week, it saw what Vanda described as unprecedented flows. Tesla attracted about a quarter of single stock purchases, likely an effort to chase some of the momentum and recoup losses from last year. Also, there's been a lot of hype ahead of Tesla's Investor Day. J.P. Morgan points out a pretty similar trend they have seen from both older and younger cohorts of retail investors. Added risk year-to-date, a lot of buying, and buying hit the highest level they've seen since last summer. Vand also says it's driven by what they call FOMO, fear of missing out, and momentum. They also warn that retail investors remain especially vulnerable to some of the negative catalysts out there, Dee. Right. Like, if anything were to happen in the macro, pain trade would probably yeah, be exactly. Um So I know we were talking about this a little bit, too. Hedge funds are following sort of retail investors and keeping that momentum going. Institutional investors less so. Is that typical of what happens? Do we see that back in 2021 as well? We did. And so it's interesting. The, the hedge funds will look at some of the sentiment indicators, some of what's going on online in the chat rooms. They'll, they'll try to chase that momentum as well. It's interesting. Institutions, so mutual funds, pensions yeah. have sort of been on the other side. S&P Global sent some data that we just got this morning that shows institution divested at roughly 10 times the amount of hedge fund and retail investors. So it's not this broad-based buying. You're actually seeing institutions, mutual right. funds, pensions, for example, getting out of the market. Mm-hmm. So sort of different sides of this trade. We'll see who ends up being yeah. right here. Okay, Brittany. Thanks as always. Thanks, Carl. Carl.
Uh, guys, let's continue that conversation with our next guest, who is also seeing some large inflows into Tesla, uh, the mega caps, some AI plays, and this boom in options trading in the SPY and triple Qs as volumes there touch record levels. Joining us this morning, Interactive Brokers Chief Strategist Steve Sosnick. Steve, it's great to have you. It's kind of interesting to watch Tesla lower uh, in a pretty good tape today. I wonder how much of this year-to-date momentum you think is sustainable. Um, good morning, Carl. I, I, you know, the momentum is fickle, right? It, it, it can kind of come and go. And I think today, uh, you know, Tesla, as, as Kate noted, remains one of the most remains the most active stock here on a daily basis for I don't know how many months straight. Um, but it looks like today more of the momentum is moving to Microsoft and moving to the AI plays. Um, investors investors do vote with their feet from time to time, and Tesla has had a remarkable run since since its lows uh, at the start of the year. Um, it, it's understandable if you know if after a pretty much of a doubling, uh, they're moving on to something else and 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 possibly reallocating some of their momentum chasing yeah. strategies. Yeah. Uh, no, an official doubling uh, as of last week. Uh, the yep. the options volume that we mentioned in the lead, uh, do you think that's introducing risk into the market, or uh, is this sort of just a different story uh, that history's repeated over and over? Um, it's uh, on the macro level. I'm going to say no, um, because you know what? Every it, th there's nothing really fundamentally changed. What changed is we now have daily expirations in most of your key ETFs and index indexes: SPX, NDX, um, QQQ, SPY, etc. Um, and so we've seen. Last week, when option volumes were hitting a record, actually a week and a half ago, sorry, when they were hitting a record, we saw volumes roughly two and a half times what we saw uh, prior to the introduction of zero-dated options. The volumes more than two and a half times in spiders and cues. So you're going to get what I call micro bursts of volatility. Um, we're going to see volatility moves as people chase momentum trades in SPY and QQQ. Um, we saw what we called the, the gamma squeezes uh, during 2021. We can start to see those in Q and, and, and SPYs, not necessarily uh, every week, but, but actually every day in theory. But in terms of the broader market, um, we'll come to deal with this. It's not a brand new financial innovation. It's just a change in the way we've been doing business. Markets adapt to that sort of thing. Steve, we, we got to talk about the AI effect, not just on smaller stocks, but on some of the very biggest in the alphabet. I mean, what is going on here? Microsoft is up about six and a half percent over the past week. Google parent alphabet down eight and a half percent. Is this just really a sentiment shift? And how should investors think about the way this is likely to continue playing out, perhaps even after this risk on trade, at least for the first few weeks of the year, has petered out? Uh, John, this is where the this is where the fundamentals meet the momentum. Um, we can certainly argue that that the Chat GPT purchase has been a huge boon to Microsoft. Uh, if nothing else, it, it's it's more or less paid for itself, depending on the time frame. You know, 15, 15 times over in terms of market cap. Um, but you know, do these trades get overdone? How many the the relative performance, let's say, of Chat AI in Bing? versus uh, ChatGPT rather in Bing versus the, the failed attempt that, that Google had. Is this going to really change people moving from, from Google to Bing? That's a big hurdle to overcome. And so another thing to keep in mind here is at Microsoft, you're paying a PEG, the price, er the price earnings over growth ratio of about two, whereas in, in Alphabet Google, you're paying more or less one times growth. So uh, there's there's definitely an expensiveness to Microsoft um, that, you know, you have to wonder 
you know, it's it's fun to chase the momentum uh, over pretty much any chat GPT related time frame. Uh, Microsoft has outperformed Alphabet by about 12 to 15 percent. I'm doing some work on that literally, which I'll have out today on our <laughs> website. But, okay. um, <laughs> you know, it's it's been a trade. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, something we've talked a lot about, and we'll see if this uh, if this event that they supposedly have planned in March is anything. We might talk about it uh, next month too. Steve, that was great. Thank you, Steve Sosnick. After the break, the glue that keeps network TV together. We're going to take a look at just how much NFL viewership matters across broadcast and cable, and then Zillow moving higher on an upgrade this morning. Evercore says it could surge 40% in the next 12 months. The analyst behind that call is with us. Don't go away. This weekend, Super Bowl reminding us more than ever how important sports are to network television. SVB Moffitt uh, Nathanson out with a note qu saying, quote, with the NFL making up 82 of the top 100 telecasts in 2022, it's clear that sports, in particular the NFL, remain the glue to the linear bundle. He notes that while average viewership for the season dropped by 4%, if you exclude Thursday night, where viewers flocked to Amazon, ratings were in fact up 1%. That's on top of a 9% jump from last year's season. But as the media landscape continues to shift with the rise of streaming, what is in store for the future of live sports, D. This is what we're all asking, and to what degree uh, does big tech act as a marginal buyer, inflating <laughs> values even more? Exactly. I mean, people are sticking with linear TV because that's how the majority are still going to watch it. But, John, we know that things are changing very, very quickly. Uh, YouTube TV spending billions on the Sunday night ticket. It's likely only going to increase. The question is, what are they going to pay up for it, right? If with amid the backdrop of layoffs and some macro uncertainty, do those rights come down a little bit or does big tech keep splashing out for it? It kind of feels inevitable. Yeah, I think they keep splashing out for it. But also for investors, this is a little bit of a cautionary stat. And to me, it speaks to with live sports that are popular. This is something that A.I., and something that the metaverse cannot replicate, right? They're not creating these must-watch uh, mass market moments. Because, I mean, if a computer made it, yeah, it can make it at any time. So there are limits to what this technology can do. And sports is actually using some of this, though. The augmented reality, there's so yes. much of it in the Super Bowl. So, you know, it, it's augmented a lot of these times with the humans, not necessarily against them, Dave. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I like the commercials, by the way. I had Canadian friends who over this weekend who enjoyed seeing all the American commercials. And I don't know if you guys saw <laughs> the, the 2B1. Everyone in, in the room, we were really? freaked out. Do accusing you everyone of, of sitting on the remote. Do you think of them well, as American commercials? I do. Uh, very much so. I, years and years of... Subpar commercials, I'm thrilled about it. <laughs> I mean, Canada owes everything to Crown Royal at this point. That was amazing. That was a good shout out. <laughs> I agree. After the break, guys, Evercore's Mark Mahaney is with us after raising the roof and upgrading Zillow to outperform. We're back in two. Let's take a look at Zillow. Shares are up some 42% year-to-date. Our next guest likes what he sees upgrading the stock to outperformed this morning and nearly doubling his price target to $61. Evercore ISI head of internet research Mark Mahaney joins us now. Uh, Mark, this is essentially a macro call, right? What makes you confident that the housing market is recovering or will recover this year? And that, I mean, a 42% rise, this isn't already baked in. 
Yeah, thanks, Deirdre. So um, uh, this is uh, a part of macro call. It's heavily that way. Our, our home building analyst, Stephen Kim, thinks that um, our, our house view, pardon the pun, is that uh, uh, EHS or existing home sales and uh, home prices are likely to trough out bottom in this uh, March quarter and then recover. So I guess that we lead with that. Uh, what we know historically is that there's a very high correlation between Zillow's key uh, premier agent revenue, the vast majority of its revenue and its profits with existing home sales. So this should fully participate. Then we look at the traffic uh, data. Uh, Zillow has kind of become synonymous with um, residential real estate in this country for 10 years. So popular that Saturday Night Live did a skit about uh, Zillow, uh, you know, a year or two ago that was highly popular. And so, yeah, they, they we haven't seen any change there. It's about 50 percent of all traffic. And then we think this is a high margin business, uh, you know, prior to the kind of major correction we saw in the market last year. I mean, Zillow was rocking along at 40, 45 percent, you know, margins, EBITDA margins. I don't I think they may have been over earning, but still there's a nice path to recovery in this company. This company will kick off material amount of free cash flow. So that's why we upgraded the stock. It's an early cyclical call. That may be our mistake mm -hmm. here. But uh, but if there's a cyclical recovery, Zillow is a great way to play it, we think. Mark, where are you on the iBuying model? Um, you noted in your note that Zillow was faced with a lot of volatility in share price because it didn't do that particularly well. But if the market is going to recover, could that have an iBuying business made Zillow's business even bigger, the company bigger versus an open door, which is still down huge over the last 12 months, but has um, been on an incredible rally this year? Uh, let's see. I um, iBuying is an extremely difficult, challenging business. It's the benefits of that accrue to the scale leader, maybe. Uh, and Zillow wasn't the scale leader, uh, scale leader. So they probably were made a mistake of going in. They certainly made the right move to get out of that market. And they avoided a lot of the massive losses. There are other parts, though, of Zillow that I like some of the other product development areas. They've been Deep, getting deeper and deeper into mortgages. They're trying to create more value for both consumers that come to the site. Uh, you know, this is the leading website for, for users who are looking, consumers that are looking to buy or sell homes. So there's um, an enormous amount of information in there. And there's information that allows people to also uh, get mortgages via Zillow. So you kind of get greater value for consumers. And on the, on, on the real estate agent side, you're trying to create a marketplace here. They've got this wonderful tool called Showing Time, which is a good touring tool for agents. So I like that product development. That's why I think there's a little bit more than just a cyclical call here. And I think this product development can help them regain or gain more share of the overall market. Mark, if I'm not mistaken, we're getting earnings from Zillow in just a couple days and lots of attention to costs these days. So lots of top line potential that you see from them um, on the, the housing market, but how are they doing on costs? Do they need to cut? Have they been efficient up to this point? No, they haven't been efficient, but they did. Uh, that's why they had to do two rifts. Uh, they've done two pretty, uh, reduction in forces uh, layoffs. So they've had to do two pretty sizable ones. Now they're probably much more efficiently set up. Um, and it is a, in, in, intuitively or instinctively, uh, it's a high margin uh, business. Again, something like this with, you know, 70, 80 percent gross margins, 30 percent plus EBITDA margins. Yeah. So, yes, they overhired and they particularly did when they made this eye buying bet. Uh, and as they peeled back from the bet, they also uh, uh, took on a they had to take a lot of uh, cost cuts. You know, you want to be long names that have already taken out, uh, okay. have already taken cost action. Zillow is one of them. Mark Mahaney, thanks very much. Talk to you soon. Thanks, dear Joe. There can always be more cost actions, though. Speaking of, up next, 11,000 Meta employees have already received notice of being let go. Are more job cuts ahead? 
Plus, some management changes coming. We'll be right back. One more thing this morning, Meta announcing a few moments ago that its chief business officer, Marnie Levine, will be departing the company. Levine had been at Meta for 13 years and led the company's advertising business. That's on the heels of this report that the company's delaying setting team budgets as it braces for another wave of layoffs. Let's bring in Julia Borston to dissect both of those uh, news items. I guess Levine first, JB. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting here. Levine had been at the company for 13 years. She is planning to stay on through the summer to manage the transition. And as part of this departure, the company is elevating two people who have also been at uh, Meta, Facebook, for a long time into expanded roles. Nicola Mendelson and Justin Asofsky, um, both managing sales and partnerships and expanded roles. They say that this new structure will help bring the business and product teams together and operate more efficiently. But there's no doubt that Marnie Levine's departure is a big loss. She had, um, you know, known various parts of the company very intimately, having worked in public policy. She was COO of Instagram. So she's really held various key roles at the company. And I would just point out she was very close to Sheryl Sandberg, brought in by Sandberg. And to me, she sort of represents some of the departures that we've seen at the company, including of Carolyn Everson. I would point out these are three very senior women who left the company um, in the wake of the transition from Facebook to Meta. So just yeah. want to keep an eye on that there. Julia, you're alluding to something that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, is it clear now that Sheryl Sandberg is gone, who is the center of business gravity at Facebook now and uh, to what extent they have buy-in across that crucial portion of the workforce? Well, I would say what they're doing now is kind of spreading out that, that center of the business relationships. Marnie Levine was clearly in one of those key roles, right? She managed a lot of those key business relationships. She, in many ways, was sort of elevated to be another Sheryl Sandberg, although she was not the COO. Um, that was a different role. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but I think what's key here is they're splitting up Marnie's role really into two different roles that will both report up to the C COO. I would add one name to that list, Fiji Simo. She went uh, to be the Instacart CEO, Julie. And I wonder, what does this tell us about succession plans? Do we care about succession plans at Facebook? It just feels like they've lost a lot of high-profile people over the last few years that could potentially step into that role. Yes, look, they have lost a number of high-profile people, and you're right, those are four very senior women who have left. But what's interesting here is when you look at succession, Meta, Facebook, it's a very different type of company. Not only is Mark Zuckerberg very young compared to some of the companies that have been uh, reckoning with succession issues, but you also have the fact that he does control the company. He has voting control over the company, Carl. Uh, pretty interesting moves there. Meta, of course, one of the big S&P gainers so far today. Uh, Julia, thanks so much. Uh, so Dow close to session highs. Uh, really not uh, too much worry circulating CPI tomorrow. By the way, tomorrow earnings will begin to pick up pace a bit. We'll get Coke and Marriott and Zoetis. Yields have remained uh, down. We got up to three and three quarters on the 10-year, but currently uh, 372. Let's get to the judge and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday, 
and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.